1: Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Everyone and welcome to Unspooled, Unspooled. Top Three. Three, three. three. <laughs> I'm Amy Nicholson. That baritone is Paul Shear, and we are both very excited to welcome you to an erotic installment of Top Ooh. Three because Love we this. have none other than the genius brainiac Karina Longworth, who is launching her new season of You Must Remember This. That is called Erotic '90s. It is a follow-up to Erotic '80s, and it is. In expansion, a massive, massive season, uh, much even bigger than the '80s, because there's so much more to talk about in the '90s. It turns out,
3: woof. I mean, we're talking about a time where you have all types of sex in film, right? Everything from Wild Things to Basic Instinct to Showgirls. Fatal Instinct. <laughs> the Fatal Instinct, the parody of Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction, uh, you know, even things like Henry and June, you know, or, or Sleeping with the Enemy. This is a time where, you know, sex is out and about and everyone is making movies about it. And, and there's a lot of different flavors. I mean, single, white, female, uh, so- Thelma and Louise even is, you know, in this mix, I think.
2: There's a lot of different flavors. There's a lot of different fears, and what I've loved about her new season, Erotic 90s so far, is her just tracing the emotions and the maelstrom and the fights against feminism and the Magic Johnson announcing that he has HIV and Anita Hill testifying on, on, about Clarence Thomas. There's so much happening in the culture and then there's so much happening in cinema. And so to help us trace this arc of what was going on in the 80s that takes us into the 90s, Karina has picked three films. One from the 80s, two from the 90s. We're going to be talking today about a film you and I talked about, Fail Attraction. Then we're going to talk about Basic Instinct and Showgirls with Karina. And I'm very excited to bring her in and just get our, get our podcast headphones all hot and steamy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> all right. Well, then without further ado... Karina, hello. I'm so excited to get erotic with you today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. I put on lipstick for this podcast. I hope that's all right. Oh, sure.
3: I was going to say, I feel like your series, and going from the 80s and now we're going into the 90s, it really has captured people's imaginations because we don't make movies like this anymore. I feel like we don't make... I mean, they're very sex positive, right? And they and they are very adult. And I feel like we don't see these types of films anymore. And I guess the closest you can get is maybe something like a White Lotus or something like that, you know, where it's like more of a, a general population thing. But even that, it's not as, I don't know, it it's there's something very like steamy and seductive about this world that I feel like people don't capture anymore on film.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for that, um, you know. It seems like Hollywood movies seem to be um, trying to reach a broader audience. Right. Um, and, you know, if you're going specifically for adults, that I guess the thinking is that you're leaving too much money on the table. Um, but, I mean, these movies were so powerful to me as a, a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old, you know, because they did seem to um, explore a world that was off-limits to me in my regular life.
2: Yeah, you said something personal in the intro episode that really struck me. As well, I was like, you said that you were a kid in the 90s learning about sex, learning about how to be a woman, and that doing this season takes you back to a very confusing and contradictory time that I also lived through. And when you said that, I felt that sting of like, oh, yeah. I didn't even <laughs> see Basic Instinct, but I feel like it imprinted on me very powerfully. Yeah.
4: Or even just like having Madonna in the culture at that time. like Even if you weren't watching Body of Evidence, but you like were aware of of her erotica album, or even just seeing music videos like Express Yourself. Um, you know, she was sort of putting forward this sexually aggressive persona that was really attractive and exciting to me as somebody who was, like, learning about my own sexuality. But then I it, I kind of, like, came to realize as I got a little bit older and I was, like, having sort of my first relationships with, with boys um, that, you know, what Madonna was sort of putting forth, like, people still weren't ready for that. (laughs) You know, like the culture like had not changed as much as you might think it had from watching MTV.
3: I mean, this was my bread and butter period of like coming of age and experiencing all this sort of stuff. And I remember walking around Walden Books, like a bookstore in the mall, because they had Madonna's sex book, Uh but it was behind the counter. Right. And it was like almost in a glass, like you couldn't, get to it. It was too dirty. And and I feel like that's maybe the difference that in in listening to your podcast and talking about this, like the difference is it wasn't, it was more titillating than it was like graphic in a way. I mean, I know that you have things like body of evidence where they're pouring candle wax on each other and doing things like that, but it's like, there was something still, I, I guess it wasn't like, it was finding this balance of being Something that an adult could go to see or, or you know, and not feel bad about, it, but feel like, oh, this is an elevated thing. It doesn't feel like softcore, like what Cinemax was putting out, I guess, in a way, like the two moon right. junction kind of stuff.
4: But, the, and then, like, when Showgirls comes out and it's, you know, extremely, like, wall to wall, naked Elizabeth yeah. Berkeley, <laughs> that is perceived by a lot of people as being too much. And that right. kind of, kind of closes the door on these movies to some extent.
2: Yeah, the way that you described, like, how they treated the Madonna book. And I remember like the two Life crew video, which you get into two mm-hmm. live crew being censored. It also makes me think of this moment that you described in the podcast of like going to video stores in the nineties and they had that velvet curtain <laughs> that you were not supposed to go behind oh, if yeah. you were Cowboy under 18. Doors. Yeah. I never got to go behind one of those. I never had the nerve. Yeah, I
4: worked in a video store where, you know, it was the kind of place that had graduated from, like, the velvet curtain to a whole separate room. Um, And by then I was, like, 20, so it was part of my job to, like, you know, put the porn back on the shelf.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Did you have to wipe down the tapes? Is that a gross question? I'm so sorry. (laughs) We
4: actually did disinfect every tape that came back, like, whether it was pornographic or not. So, like, it comes, like, you know, through the chute, and then we would spray (laughs) on it and wipe (laughs) it off.
2: That's fair. I guess the Care Bears movie would be probably as disgusting.
4: Well, a lot of people, you know, they'd
2: rent, like,
4: you know, Hooker's 17 or whatever. And then they'd also rent, like, a Spielberg movie. And so the right. two tapes would touch.
3: Well, I also feel like that was the way they kind of hide it. It was like, oh, yes, I want to see Hook and Hooker's yeah. uh, <laughs> 17. I worked at Blockbuster. And one of the most uh, upsetting things was that mm-hmm. people were always looking for our porn section, which we didn't have, and uh-huh. constantly going into the bathroom and coming out confused. Because I thought, <laughs> oh, there's a door. That's the porn section. I was like, nope, that's just a bathroom. So I saw so many people in and out of that bathroom with, <laughs> within <laughs> seconds. It was always my favorite thing. People always asking like under the table, like, well, where is it? Where is it? Did you it's guys not here. carry,
4: like, the Shannon Tweed sort of, like, unrated oh, yeah. softcore?
3: Yes, we had, like, the one, I remember the one with Corey Haim and Nicole Eggert. Uh-huh. Uh, that was more the teen one, at which I was more, uh, you know, again, like, very chaste at this point when you think about mm. anything. It was just basically naked people. Uh, and I also remember that uh, we had The Getaway, the Alec Baldwin-Kim Basinger remake on edited version or the, the, you know, or the unrated version. Mm -hmm. And that one was shocking, or at least to me when I saw it, of how, how graphic it was. I was like, oh, wow. And and I was like, maybe because they're married, they could do more graphic (laughs) things. I don't, I I was like looking at this from that perspective, but it was, yeah, it was an intense time.
2: I mean, that unrated thing feels sort of like what you also get into the episode talking about just like the struggles of the MPA to launch the NC-17, which made me really think, I wish we had a viable NC-17 that people could go to, that you could put, like, deep water in, which I I really liked Deep Water, the movie that came out last year where Anade almost takes a pubic hair out of her mouth after going down on Ben Affleck. I was like, damn, that's the closest (laughs) to an NC-17 I've just wandered into in a while.
4: I mean, NC-17 technically still exists, um, you know, but I think a lot of of erotic 90s uh, talks about sort of why it doesn't get used anymore. Yeah. It was certainly barely used even when it was new. Right,
3: because it was basically the death of the movie, because it it, it equated this thing. I, I remember, um, what was it, the movie, like, Henry... Uh, Henry and the, June. Yeah. Henry and June, right? That was the one that I remember as being, like, it's just like, oh, well, you can't, like, it, it almost made the film seem yeah pornographic like to a point like oh this is not like it NC seventeen almost seemed worse than X or something like that it was like oh was not right this is definitely not appropriate. I don't know it seemed it seemed like a, a parent was telling you you couldn't watch it or something I don't know
4: well, first of all, like that just calling it NC seventeen it's really clumsy. it's supposed to stand right. for no children under seventeen allowed but it does seem like it's it's saying something illicit and yeah. then um you know the one of the big commercial sort of problem with NC seventeen movies is that a lot of um uh, movie theaters like when they sign their lease especially if they're in a mall it said on the lease like you can't show X rated movies here oh, and then wow. when they change it over to NC-17 they're like yeah same thing guys you can't show those movies and so even when distributors had a movie that was rated NC-17 and they wanted to release it as NC-17 and not cut it to get an R they would struggle to find enough theaters to put it in. And so that was what happened with Henry and June, which was more of an art film anyway, but it could only show on 600 screens. And this was at a time when a wide release was like Um, 2,500. And even Showgirls is like the widest released NC-17 movie ever, and that was 1,200 screens.
0: Want to make mom's day?
1: go spread the word when you get a fresh hot mccrispie from mcdonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag don't try to wait till you get home always respect hot chicken the McCrispy. only at mcdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba
2: let's start by tracing this arc of the movies that did manage to get through kind of this like naughtiness barrier maybe even use the naughtiness in their favor you know let's talk about the very first one you've brought to us for your top three, Fatal Attraction, which was on the cover of Time, calling it a nightmare parable of sex in the 80s.
4: Yeah, Fatal Attractions from 1987, directed by Adrian Lyne, just like Deepwater, um, starring uh, Glenn Close and Michael Douglas and Anna Archer. And it's about um, a lawyer played by Michael Douglas who has an affair with a work colleague played by... Glenn Close, and then she doesn't, like, respect the rules as far as he's concerned and kind of keeps after him and won't let him go back to his wife. Um, and then it all kind of blows up in the end, and um, she sort of turns into a um, a psychologically damaged, like, witch character, and uh, his wife has to kill her.
3: It's such an interesting movie. We talked about it here on the podcast a bit, and we talked a lot about the original ending of the film and how they had to kind of change it. And and really, it was, you know, to make Michael Douglas's character more likable in a way, right? I mean, it's like watching it now for the first time as an adult, I was kind of blown away by it because they really, I think, shortchange uh, Glenn Close in a way. Like they make her so crazy to almost justify, like, Michael Douglas's behavior.
2: He gets off the hook of cheating because this script makes her so unhinged.
3: Like, if she was just cool, it wouldn't have been a big deal.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's the
4: whole... That seems to be his whole attitude of, like, you knew the rules. Like, you knew that we were just gonna have, like, one intensely erotic weekend while my wife and kid were out of town and then you know that would be the last we'd ever see each other and it's just so interesting like you know you could definitely i mean they're remaking it as a tv show so we'll see what that's like but right. i mean it's it's basically like what he's trying to do is ghost her in our sort of modern parlance and and then you know she turns into a witch
2: <laughs> i mean you said the the word rules twice now yeah
4: he's he's basically like you knew the rules yeah yeah, so I guess the rules are you know, he, like she knew he was married. She came on to him anyway. He acquiesced to her seduction. Um, but she had to know, you know, like even though it was unspoken, that it was a temporary thing because he's married and they have this professional relationship. And, you know, I mean, definitely part of the subtext is like women shouldn't really like be in the workplace anyway. You know, like a good woman <laughs> is the one that right. is, you know, gardening and taking care of the kid. Um, like it's it's – and then there's this contrast between like the professional woman who is sort of, you know, deranged –
3: well, you also like there's a there's a a bit of a hypocrisy here. Like it like we talk you talk about this in, in the season of the show, but also I think in this movie too, it's like, you know, he is the perfect family man, and that never seems to waver. Like he's like like there's something really interesting about the way that, you know, he's cheating on his wife, he's going and doing all this sort of stuff, but yet he just seems like above it all. And I do think that this idea of like why this movie connects at this point or why it connects uh, both ways is maybe because many men are like, Oh yeah, I I could do this. I could also be this kind of a guy. I feel like, you know, like I could cheat on my wife, but also love my family and feel like I'm still a a lovable guy. I don't know. There's something very interesting about how they want to have it both ways in this. I think that's, uh, yeah, just something that really took me by surprise in this, this entire like, I guess in all these movies in a way, it's like these men that get wrapped up in sex, but it's like, ah, it's sex. I, I have no control over it. You know, it's almost like well, I'm just an animal subjected to this, but it's not me.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the discourse around the movie at the time, and, you know, this was a movie where people were talking about it and writing newspaper editorials about it for nine months. A lot of that was about that. And it was about, like, how are we actually navigating this moment that we live in where, like, obviously women's roles have changed, Um, But have men's roles changed as well? Like, are they just behaving the same way? And are we okay with that?
2: Yeah, exactly. Because I feel like so much of how we talk about sex seems to focus on what's going on in the culture with women, like Mm -hmm. whether they're on the pill, whether they're defining themselves as feminists, whether they're working. So that men can just continue to do whatever they want to do. Right. Exactly. So I'm glad we're talking about men.
4: Yeah, I mean, a lot of erotic 90s actually is like, I'm, I'm reading all this stuff that was written about these movies, and all of it is like, or almost all of it is focused on, you know, is this a good representation of women? Is it accurate? Is it good for women? Is it bad for women? And none of it seems to be about like what these movies are saying
2: about men. Do you see kind of like a, a change in men as we go from the 80s to the 90s, as we're headed towards the 90s ourselves in our talk?
4: I mean, yeah, I think that there is sort of an evolution in, in how the movies kind of go from um, you know, the, the sort of standard Michael Douglas character of fatal attraction and to some extent basic instinct um of sort of, you know, this American man who feels like they've been displaced in some ways and then, mm-hmm. you know, as time goes on like there some some of these films are able to talk a little bit more about fragility, I think in Decent Proposals certainly um, deals with like male fragility um and just sort of this question of like are men okay um
2: (laughs) (laughs) are men okay (laughs) yeah
4: but then i think it's it's you know the ultimate are men okay movie is eyes wide shut
2: oh paul let me ask you as a man are men okay
3: Uh, look we are very you know this is a we're nervous i mean when we saw disclosure we're like oh my god our whole careers could be wrecked by this woman who just wants to have sex with us i mean this is you know (laughs) we we learn the dangers of the workplace uh you know, That's you just also a...
4: Michael Douglas, isn't it?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Of and actually,
4: like the I mean, spoiler alert, I don't know if you guys are gonna talk about disclosure, but I
3: did on How Did This Get Made. So we we've done yeah. a lot of we've done a lot of the the lesser uh erotic thrillers on How Did This Get Made. Color of Night, Disclosure, uh the one with Chaz Palmentary and uh, Jade.
4: Oh yeah. I've just been writing my Jade this week. Um, <laughs> but the thing about disclosure is that like if it was a movie about a woman sexually harassing a man, it would be more interesting. But she actually only only does it, like, so that she can get rid of him in the workplace. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's not really about her sexual desire. It's not really about this gender flip thing. It's all kind of an excuse to, like, cover up her own corporate incompetence. Um, right. So it's, yeah, it's, like, even worse. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think? I mean, can we
3: just talk a little bit for, about Michael Douglas? Because he is oddly, you know, this, like, uh this lighthouse through all these movies or at least seemingly like he mm-hmm. is the monument. And I know you're saying like he is this American male, but like, those
2: are two very phallic words just right. now. Yes. I just he is the
3: Washington it. monument <laughs> of these, uh, these thrillers. Um, but it, like, it, what do you think he represents? I know he represents like, a maybe like, is he the model of, the american man that at that time people wanted to be or like what what is it about him cuz he does he's able to show fragility he's able to show like he's things but it's like i don't know I, like he's an interesting character i don't know but he's also tough or i'm just trying mm-hmm. to break down what what was so interesting about him that kind of put him in all these roles
4: well i think that there's sort of subtextually like the off-screen stuff of him being kind of a second generation hollywood star you know there's a certain americanness associated with that Um, And then also the fact that he was known as kind of a 60s, 70s radical who had evolved as America had evolved, like, and he becomes this symbol of of 80s man with fatal attraction and Wall Street coming out in the same year. And then with Basic Instinct, it's like 90s man. Um, And, you know, actually, like in between – he did Basic Instinct and in Falling Down, and then there was sort of a gap before disclosure. And in that time, he very publicly went to rehab, which was a very 90s thing to do to, like, you know, acknowledge your problems and, like, acknowledge your frailty. And, like, um, so it, like, what by the time he's making disclosure, people are sort of saying, like, oh, he's like an avatar for Bill Clinton. Like, okay. he's like the 60s liberal who, like, changed through the 80s and, like, now is here in the 90s.
2: Well, so then let's talk about him in the 90s. Let's talk about your second pick, which is Basic Instinct. Yeah, Basic
4: Instinct, directed by Paul Verhoeven from a script by Joe Esterhaus, um, starring Michael Douglas as a San Francisco cop who gets involved with a woman he's investigating for murder, played by Sharon Stone. Um, and she is bisexual, and um, he is both intrigued and repelled by that um, and there's an ice pick.
3: <laughs> By the way, the very similar story to Body of Evidence, the Wilm Defoe Madonna film, where it's like, these men are kind of grossed out or just like, I don't understand. Like, they're intrigued and, and actually I would say like dismissive or judgmental. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. it's a better word. Judgmental of these women who aren't just you know, uh, just having heterosexual relationships or something like that. Like, there's something very yeah. interesting about that, like, that judgment, but also the intrigue.
4: Well, what's interesting about Body of Evidence and the way it was received is, like, she doesn't have sex with women in that movie. Like, all the sex that we see her have is heterosexual. Um, but I read reviews where people were like, oh, the sex scenes are inspired by gay porn. And it's like, why would you say that? Right. It's like, what are you saying that gay porn signifies to you, and how do you see that in this movie? And, and the only thing I can think of is just that, like, the, because the power dynamics of the sex scenes are different than what we're used to seeing because she's almost always controlling the action. She's almost always on top. And there is, you know, a little bit of a flavor of bondage to some of it, but why is that what we, what this person associated with gay porn
2: Right. I have not seen Body of Evidence since I was way too young to have seen Body of Evidence, but it was like <laughs> ingrained in my brain. I think I was, was telling you this after Martini, like the scene where where she's with Willem Dafoe and they're like, she's putting him into her crotch on broken glass on top of a car. Maybe I've even remembered that wrong, but in my brain, that's what it was.
4: Honestly, that scene, <laughs> which, in which, which takes place in a parking garage, is the most graphic sex scene I've seen for this project. Um, because in the sense that like you can't figure out how it could be faked
2: we should really get to the bottom of this (laughs) (laughs) but so what was the attention like when basic instinct came out was like the attention the outrage the cultural conversation different than it had been with michael douglas and fatal attraction
4: So, Basic Instinct was a massive blockbuster. It made close to four hundred million dollars worldwide. So it would be the size of like an Avengers movie today, which is pretty crazy because it's like kind—it's just like this Hitchcock ripoff, um, you know, about like uh, adults having sex and killing each other.
3: Are these all kind of riffs on Vertigo in a weird way too? I mean, like you know, like Vertigo, I think touches on that, but this, like, they kind of all feel like yeah, it's like like they want that mystery makes it elevated.
4: That is true. And actually, like, I'm writing about showgirls this week, and Paul, I came across this quote from Paul Verhoeven that I hadn't seen when I was researching Basic Instinct, but he's basically saying that he thinks showgirls failed because it wasn't a genre film. It wasn't, mm. like, hiding the sex inside genre. Right. Um, whereas Basic Instinct was successful because, like, you could have this long sex scene between Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone, and the whole time you're watching them have sex, you're also asking the question, but is she going to kill him?
2: Yeah. Right, right. That's what I find so interesting is like something like Basic Instinct just feels like that kind of test of Verhoeven laying it down like, hey, American audiences, sex makes you freak out. Violence, though, you're cool with. I showed you that in Robocop.
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, he's I think he's always kind of um, using Hollywood's tools against Hollywood, in a way, to the sort of slyly critique it, and one of the issues that I think is really funny about Basic Instinct is that people didn't see it as being critical at all. They just took it as like a, a at face value film, and and d- kind of didn't understand the way he's playing with some like some of these tropes from Vertigo's, um, some of these ideas about doubling um, and mirroring, and so. It was sort of like when he and Esther Haas like saw how successful that movie was, even though it got terrible reviews, um, you know, they kind of doubled down on Showgirls and, and made something that is about some of the same themes, but much more extreme.
2: Yeah. Take me to there. Take me. How- <laughs> take us through from Paul Verhoeven making Basic Instinct to Showgirls, because I feel like. My main memory of the rise of Showgirls coming out was that everybody was talking about how this movie starring my girlfriend, Saved, saved by the Bell, was just going to be awful. I don't remember this movie ever being given a shot, even.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that they wisely or unwisely, like, didn't really let people see the movie until right before it came out. Um, one of the ways they promoted it, actually, was by releasing VHS um, extended trailers of like eight minutes of footage that was sort of too risqué to show on television. Oh, they w- made that a free rental at video stores. I'm sure it wasn't at Blockbuster, but um, uh, they, they managed to get 250,000 copies of this VHS out there. And I think like, you know, that sort of backfired in a way where it's like people, you know, kind of saw all they needed to see and then didn't go see the movie. Um But So basically what happens is that Joe Esterhaas, the screenwriter, and the director, Paul Verhoeven, have this big falling out over Basic Instinct um, because Basic Instinct was protested by gay groups as being homophobic, and Joe Esterhaas sided with the protesters (laughs) um, (laughs) because he had had sort of um, a conflict with Verhoeven because Verhoeven—there had been no lesbian sex in in the script, and Verhoeven was like, I really want to play up— The fact that she's, like, having sex with a woman in the movie, and Esther Haas was against that. So they had this big falling out, and then they made up. They went to the Ivy, and they had lunch, and they're like, oh, yeah, we should, like, really work together again. And Verhoeven was like, you know what I've always wanted to do is make a musical, and, um, <laughs> and wow. Esther Haas was like, oh, you know, maybe we could like do something set in Vegas because, you know, they have these stage shows there. So they used that as an excuse to like go to Vegas a bunch of times and get a bunch of lap dances and do a lot of interviews. Um, and then at the same time, Esther Haas was in this um, sort of sex scandal where he had written this movie Sliver that Sharon Stone was in and – Sharon Stone had um, broken up the marriage of the producer of Sliver, Bill McDonald, and Bill McDonald's wife, Naomi, became friends with Joe Haas and his wife, Jerry, and they all went on vacation together to Maui. And on that vacation, Joe Haas was like, actually, I'm in love with Naomi and broke up Whoa. his marriage of 25 years. So he was like living in Maui with Naomi in exile and like you know, desperately missing his teenage children who his wife wouldn't let him see and just smoking a lot of pot. And it was in that climate that he wrote Showgirls. And so the main character of Showgirls is named Nomi, which was his now wife, Naomi's nickname. And there's like a lot of details in the script that kind of reference Naomi, like the actual woman. And so for Esther Haas, this was like a really personal film about like a woman encountering like, like a dark world and and sort of have almost having like a religious experience of redemption and sort of choosing the light over the dark, and then for Verhoeven, it, it seems to have been like a way of trying to, to um, really troll anybody who <laughs> took basic right. instincts seriously by kind of taking everything that was a critique of of the way entertainment presents sex and just you know exploding it like literally exploding it with a volcano. <laughs>
3: you know, i wanted to talk a, a little bit about like how these movies can kind of get boiled down to a moment too and, and like and the, the way that like i feel like showgirls in a weird way like amy you were saying like gets boiled down to be like the girl from saved by the bell is gonna be naked in this and that's wrong because she's a kid actor and it's like well it's not it's not really that it's like or they just get they just get maybe painted as one thing like for me even thinking about basic instinct it's the the leg cross scene right like these they
2: get memed in a way before we had the word yeah. meme they kind of get the scary movie I think it was how I would have thought about it back then
3: yeah and it's very interesting that like in a, in a weird way it it kind of takes the most salacious thing or the most uh you know uh the, the most tantalizing thing and then like just hangs it out there and, and then it, I think it devalues the movie in a way because like showgirls is a film that really can't get back over the hump in any way like it it's become this cult classic it becomes this like rocky horror thing but it never really like you said it never really had a chance because i think people were already made their opinion before seeing a frame of it
4: also another thing about the reviews um which were universally negative in 1995 a lot of them were reviewing um joe esterhaas the reviewers knew about, like, this marriage scandal. They knew that he was the highest-paid screenwriter in Hollywood history. They knew he had been paid a lot of money for this script and for other scripts. And they took him to task for, like, being sleazy in his personal life, writing sleazy movies, getting paid too much for writing sleazy movies, and also for how he looked. Like, there are, you know, reviews where they people, you know, talk about how, like, he wasn't thin and, like, how he had, like, long hair and, like, kind of had, like, biker-style um, and so they made it really personal and it's like I don't have a ton of empathy for Joe Esther Haas right. but like when you read these reviews it's like people are not necessarily talking about the movie
2: no they're, but it does sound like they're talking about the things that the movie is inadvertently talking about about moralism and judgment or the, the buttons that the movie I guess is hitting in some
4: yeah ways. I mean it's really interesting to see like how people both like missed the point of Showgirls but also embodied the point <laughs>
1: Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba.
2: I think it's interesting that in a cast that's like, you know, Kyle McLaughlin is in it, you've got, of course, like Verhoeven and Esther House writing it. The person who took, I feel like, the most damage from the film is Elizabeth Berkeley. The woman, and that doesn't mm-hmm. feel like an accident.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Esther Haas's career really crashed and burned too, because uh, Jade came out three weeks later, which he also wrote, and they were both kind of legendary flops. But um, certainly, Elizabeth Berkeley like never really got a, a movie career off the ground. Um, and I actually went to a screening of Showgirls a couple of months ago. It was like a private screening that somebody organized, and Elizabeth Berkeley came and introduced it, and she talked about how you know once the reviews came out, Verhoeven stopped doing press, Esther Haas stopped doing press, and she had to travel the world alone representing this movie. Oh, my um, God. And so she's, like, on the road at 22 years old representing this movie that has been, um, you know, eviscerated, that is, like, you know, it arrives as a joke. Um, and it was a really traumatic experience for her. Um, and then that sort of, like, it feels like that's replicating some of what the movie is about in terms of being a critique of, um, the way that Hollywood and, but as an extension of America, treats women as being disposable and interchangeable.
3: Wow! And we were talking a little bit about this too with horror. Like sometimes these, like we were talking about, um, oh my gosh, uh, Linda Blair or something like that. Like, like women have this ability to get labeled as this thing. And then their careers really suffer because of it. You know, Color of Night is a great erotic thriller that, or not a great, it is an erotic thriller, Bruce, Bruce <laughs> Willis. And it's, I wouldn't say it's one of the best, um, but like his career doesn't suffer as much as, as a, a woman's career. Like, I think that like Sharon Stone's the interesting one, because in a weird way, her movie was so successful, that like it couldn't be denied. And, and I feel like that she seemed like mm. she kind of got on this rare air, but there is a lot of this Really just dis- it's almost it almost feels like a one night stand in the way people are like, okay, I had this experience with this person or this character, now I'm I'm done with them and I'll keep the guy around, but I'll I'll get rid of the the woman.
4: Yeah, so I mean, certainly like Verhoven has talked about, um, the only way he could really deal with the failure of showgirls was like, you know, work as fast as he could to get starship troopers made. Right. And somebody like Elizabeth Berkeley didn't have that option to go straight into her next thing. In fact, her agents dropped her.
2: Wow. I think it's interesting that in these three films of this arc, like Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Showgirls, we go from a film that was considered kind of respectable. We're talking like Oscar nominations for Mm -hmm. Best Picture, Best Actress, Supporting Actor, Adapted Director, Editing, tons of Oscar nominations – to a movie that I've seen, like, reenacted with sock puppets and became a national <laughs> yeah. joke.
4: It feels like... Yeah, I mean, ba- and Basic Instinct really is kind of right in between where it's, like, this massive commercial hit, but the reviews are bad. It, like, it, you know, it the I think it got two Oscar nominations, both for craft, not for Sharon Stone, not for Michael Douglas, and then Showgirls, yeah, it was, like, an international joke.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like in there, quality aside, I feel like I sense a lot of discomfort in the American populace with sex.
4: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, again, it's like, I really think that Verhoeven was like, you know, they took basic instincts seriously. So let's see what else they'll take seriously. (laughs) And, you know, really just, I mean, Showgirls is, it's set in a world in which there is excessive nudity. So in the fact that it's documenting that, I don't think the nudity is excessive, but it was so much more than what people were used to seeing in a Hollywood movie at the time.
2: You bring up in in your first episode this lawsuit from a film director named Howard Ziem over like the MPA rating for his movie, Flesh Gordon Meets the Cosmic Cheerleaders. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you kind of say that one of his arguments at the time was he said, putting limits on what Americans can and cannot see is hurting our national maturity in a way.
4: Right. And I I actually think that we're seeing this now where it's been a really long time since Hollywood movies not only have shown sex, but have... um, considered adult relationships to be important, and you see—it seems like you're seeing a lot of young people who um, are rejecting sex, who um, certainly are rejecting sex scenes, and the idea of movies or TV shows um, depicting that part of life, and it just seems like, I don't know, I'm for, you know, 100% body autonomy, and so, like, if you don't want to watch something, don't watch it, but I also just think that art can— can and should depict all aspects
2: of life. Yeah, I really feel like the modern cinema has become so sexless. I'm, I'm trying to even picture Captain America getting an erection, like as Captain America.
3: <laughs> well, this is a script you've been trying to get off the ground for a long time. And you know, and I tell you, Amy, this is not that
4: you should not be pitching any of our guests your new movie. <laughs>
2: I'm just saying it'll be, it'll be monumental to use I mean, a Paul Scherer term.
4: You know, it is like it, for me, it's such a waste of somebody like Chris Pine, who I think is like really sexy. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that, like, primarily he's spent the past 15 years making movies where, like, that's not part of the story.
2: Oh, I could mm-hmm. see him taking on some Michael Douglas roles.
4: Because he's really kind now. of
2: like, yeah, that yeah. all American, but that little bit of smarm. Yeah. And like now he's kind of a silver fox. Oh, yeah. <laughs> by the way, while we're talking about silly things, I just want to say the intro song for your new season totally rips. I was like hearing—I mean, it's a mashup, but I was hearing like Madonna erotica, right? Said Fred, "Color Me Bad." You end on a, a clip of Todd Field, venerated director of Tar, uh, and eyes wide shut. Those are bangers, man.
4: Thanks. Yeah, I am. Um, I, when I was putting that together, I actually discovered a song I didn't know about uh, by Gloria Stefan called "Sex in the '90s," um, and it—you know—she's just basically like you know, we should stop having sex because now it's dangerous.
2: Oh, no, <laughs> oh, Gloria. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Gloria. I was very wow. disappointed I mean in the, in the sex
4: negativity <laughs> of this um, deep track from Gloria <laughs> Stefan.
3: I, I don't mean to put you on uh, on the spot because we didn't talk about it before, but, you know, we are talking about, like, this body positivity and sexual uh, films, and I think that Amy and I just got off talking about um, Magic Mike in those mm. films. And that's, like, to me... One of the closest things, especially like Magic Mike XXL, where you're seeing a movie that, you know, like Showgirls is, you know, is is kind of dealing with the same thing, but received in a very, very different way. And I wonder if part of that is because it's men, uh, part mm-hmm. of it, or is part of it the culture, you know, or, you know, or part of his quality. I don't know. It's an interesting thing, but that's, that's like a movie that I was... It was really interesting and exciting to kind of see, like, oh, wow, like, sex is replaced with dancing, but it's very sexual. You know, it's a very, mm. I think it's a very erotic kind of dancing. Uh, but, yeah, I, I wondered if what you had any thoughts on, like, do you think that those movies could exist now, or could there be more Magic Mics, or is that really, like, an outlier in this kind of world that we're in?
4: Well, I haven't seen the new one, so I, I don't, mm. I don't really know, like... Because the last one I saw was XXL, which I guess was probably 10 years ago. and Yeah. I, so I, I can't really speak to, like, how the new one represents, like, our cultural moment. Very badly. Moment. <laughs> oh, really? That's too bad.
3: <laughs> the new one's a bummer only because the second one was so good and it yeah. was so fun and they just kind of took out the dancing.
4: I think there's something about Soderbergh where, like, people just receive his movies as being cool, even if they're mm-hmm. not good. Um, and that like buys him a lot of leeway. Um, I actually talk in one of the later episodes of the season, it's the episode about Indecent Proposal. And, you know, that's a movie that was absolutely eviscerated by critics. Um, and like, kind of like Fatal Attraction, like sparked all these op-eds about how it's terrible for women, um, but was a massive box office success. And, um, a lot of their writing about that movie was like, well, it's so implausible that this could ever happen. And, I compare it to um, Out of Sight because, like, the whole thing... And I feel like people have just, like... It's, like, consensus that Out of Sight is, like, a non-problematic sexy movie. But what happens in that movie is that, like, it's two people who have to, like, kind of break from their regular lives and have what they call a timeout in order to be together. And it seems like, to me, in Indecent Proposal, Demi Moore is sort of treating her thing with Robert Redford as a timeout from her marriage. And it's, like, financially good for her marriage, um, but it's also kind of a sexual adventure. She gets to take a little time out and have this sexual adventure. And that is considered incredibly problematic, but the out-of-sight thing isn't. And probably it's because of the money, um, but right. it's also probably partially because Indie proposal is not considered cool.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: That vague cool. I'm very excited to hear the rest of the season's episodes because, like, I find your your takes and your opinions and your insight so wonderfully unpredictable. I, mean, I like that in episode two you defend Pretty Woman. You know, a movie that I've wanted to cover on this show that I think now has developed this vague sense of uncool cloud of doesn't that movie suck? Isn't it problematic in the most Flat. Like congratulations. You learned one thing about reading a movie way. Um, so I'm very excited to hear what is coming next. But I want to ask you one ridiculous question as we leave. <laughs> okay. Crean, has anybody ever told you that your voice is erotic?
4: Oh my God. Um, luckily, no. <laughs> what?
2: That's impossible. Um, no wow. like
4: people often say, you know, it's sort of an ASMR thing. Like it helps them fall asleep. So you don't you don't want to fall asleep
2: during sex. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you want to wake up next to that voice then. That's cute. They want to marry your voice. Well, it's taken, but...
3: Oh, my gosh. Well, it's such a pleasure to get you back on the show and and chat with you about these uh, films and the podcast. And And I also think it's fun to revisit. And because what we found on How Did This Get Made is as much as there are ones that are really fun and really well done, the ones that aren't, as well done are equally as fun to watch it, it is like it is bizarre it is you know um you know I, I remember in watching jade like you know they described this like sex house and it's like <laughs> they got california pizza kitchens and sh- uh, like frozen pizzas and champagne and like and a sex pillow out there it's like it's like it's it's almost like by hearing my son talk about a conversation he overheard, it's like, it's a few details that are right and a few that are wrong, but he's saying them with such gusto and confidence. That it's like laying down, like, what sex is, you know? I mean, and yeah, that <laughs>
4: scene where David Caruso finds the, like, $6 frozen pizza and it's
2: yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, well, you know, it's,
0: that's what this has to be. Yeah, oh my that makes <laughs> laugh I haven't seen so
2: Jade since college, but I have this vendetta against it because... I was writing about it for a class called, like, Sex and Feminism, and my teacher really took the stance that it was feminist, and I took the stance that it (laughs) wasn't. And she just wrote D-plus on my paper and didn't defend why I was wrong, and I've always been mad about that movie. She's just mad I disagreed with her, but I've held this grudge against that movie and that teacher ever since.
4: I mean, Joe Esterhaus argued that it was feminist because it was about, like, a woman, um, you know, getting revenge against her cheating husband by— uh, having a lot of casual sex. I don't know. I don't I don't really understand the argument. I, th- I just think it's like kind of a missed opportunity because there's like elements that are interesting. Like maybe if Michael Mann had made it instead of William Friedkin, <laughs> it would have been sort of more about this male rivalry, which is much more interesting than what it actually is about, which is just sort of David Caruso being a confused cop.
2: Yeah, I just remember being like, she flashes dudes in order to stab them. That's not, is that feminism? That's not what happens in the movie. <laughs> oh, you got well, that's what I remember happening. Uh, <laughs> I thought she flashed a dude in a car and then immediately killed him.
3: I don't think that, ha- yeah. But, I think that's no, a different it,
4: movie, but I, like, when you figure out one movie that is, let me you know, I
2: should include it. Well, that movie, I'm mad at it too.
3: Is Wild Things going to be touched on at all in yeah. your, okay, great that's another one that's a really interesting one. I would love to look back at that one as well.
2: I'm kind of like
4: doing several episodes throughout the 90s about what I call the 90s Lolita. And so it starts with Drew Barrymore and Alicia Silverstone. And then there's going to be an episode about wild things and cruel intentions and Britney Spears. And then, of course, Adrian Lyons' Lolita.
1: Oh,
3: this is great. I cannot wait. (laughs) I cannot
4: wait. Uh, Well, this is awesome. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for coming by, lady. Thanks for having me.
3: (laughs) I always love when she is on the show. And remember to uh, listen to, you must remember this. Uh, if you did not catch the 80s erotic thrillers, you got to go back or just start here. Really, start anywhere you want. Get into it. Uh, it's such a great podcast. You can get it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'm so excited to have her here. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash paul unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the Unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium. And for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show, you can head on over to unspooledpod.com.